listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 229 of Belaboured. Today, we are talking about Joe Biden and the Green New Deal. What's happening, what's not, and what labor's role is. But first, the news. Nabisco workers are on strike in five states having begun August 10th in Portland, Oregon, and now including about 1,000 workers in Colorado, Virginia, Illinois, and Georgia, represented by the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union, BCTGM, which is, of course, the same union that led the 19-day strike recently at the Frito-Lay plant in Kansas. The company is demanding what amounts to a two-tier health care plan and an end to higher pay for overtime and weekend hours. As Alex Press noted in Jacobin, quote, at the Chicago shop, scheduling is brutal. Workers are regularly forced over, assigned a second eight-hour shift following the first one, with 80-hour weeks a frequent occurrence. Such schedules are increasingly common across the food production industry as employers turn to mandatory overtime instead of finding new hires. While such an approach means high wage costs, though this is precisely what Mondelez is seeking to get rid of in the new contract, understaffing saves on the benefits to which new hires would be entitled, as well as hiring and training costs. Mondelez is the parent company of Nabisco. April Flowers Lewis, one of those workers, told Alex, quote, There wasn't a second thought when it came to going out on strike because of the way they work us. Our regular schedule is eight hours, but now we're working 16 hours. The reason is that people have retired and other people are out on sick leave. We have team leads who have left and haven't been replaced. Without a replacement, who else can fill the position but us working longer hours? During the pandemic, she continued, every day was 16 hours, end quote. Donald Woods, president of the local union in Chicago, told the Washington Post that the strike is being led by longtime workers, including some whose parents or grandparents worked at the Nabisco Bakery, who are, quote, fed up with years of cost cutting being carried out by a profitable multinational corporation. Those concerns, he continued, bubbled after the company sought financial concessions from its overworked, undercompensated workers. Our position is we're understaffed, Woods told the Post. The company, quote, wants to save every dime they can, and it just takes everything out of the workers. You've got the CEO who's making 16 or 17 million a year in salary, but you won't pay into the pension fund, end quote. We are, as Alex noted, starting to see more and more of these struggles as boss's solution to increase demand is to push workers to work longer hours. And in this case, we directly see the company attempting to take away one of the only incentives that exist for it to hire more workers rather than force overtime. We literally have workers on strike here for the eight-hour day all over again. These are working conditions at these factories that had already been on the decline before the pandemic, as they had been at Frito-Lay, that have now become utterly intolerable, at the same time as the companies and the executives are making more money. In such a time, it's not surprising to see increased anger from workers, and as the business press ponders the so-called Great Resignation, it's stories like these of essential workers being forced to work in unsafe conditions for longer and longer periods of time that they should remember. After fighting it out at the ballot box and in the courts for months, rideshare companies and labor advocates have finally arrived at a potentially groundbreaking court ruling that could thwart Uber and Lyft's efforts to bar its drivers from unionizing or seeking recognition as employees. A California Superior Court judge ruled that Proposition 22, which passed in a statewide referendum last November, was unconstitutional and unenforceable. Judge Frank Roche stated that the law, quote, appears only to protect the economic interest of the network 
network companies in having a divided, ununionized workforce, which is not a stated goal of the legislation, unquote. The law was pushed to a referendum victory with a $200 million-plus ad campaign by the rideshare industry and labor groups who denounced it as a frontal assault on workers' rights disguised as a measure to benefit workers. Prop 22's central purpose was to preempt collective bargaining rights and other worker protections for rideshare drivers by exempting them from another state law, AB5, which would have made it easier for workers currently deemed independent contractors to qualify for full employee status, with all the protections that come with that. But Prop 22 presented itself as a pro-worker law by providing very minimal standards for driver earnings, workplace safety, and other protections. The judge not only deemed it unlawful because it undercut workers' rights, but also deemed it unconstitutional because it needed a ridiculous threshold of seven-eighths of the state legislature. The legal challenge was led by Service Employees International Union and a group of rideshare drivers in hopes of having it overturned so that the drivers could once again qualify for the enhanced protections under AB5. However, they're not in the clear yet. The decision can still be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. I spoke with Nicole Moore, a rideshare driver and volunteer organizer with Rideshare Drivers United, which represents drivers all across California. She talked about what the ruling means for drivers and gig workers in her state and beyond. Moore also described the impact of Prop 22 so far on California rideshare drivers. New survey research indicates that despite the law's promise to provide health care for drivers, many workers ended up being excluded from these protections due to the complex and narrow eligibility criteria. I'm just thrilled. Um, I... (laughs) There is this one quote in the ruling that I just think is worth listening to. Um, the judge actually says, and this is just this is just exactly right. A prohibition on legislation authorizing collective bargaining by app-based drivers does not promote the right to work as an independent contractor, nor does it protect work flexibility nor does it provide minimum workplace safety and pay standards for those workers. It appears only to protect the economic interests of the network companies in having a divided, ununionized workforce, which is not the stated goal of the legislation. I just love that quote because it is the judge seeing right through what this is. Prop 22 was you know, basically an invention of Lyft, Uber, and DoorDash on how could they make sure that they never had to follow basic labor law in California. And the way they framed it was, there's this great new way that drivers can have a better situation. Um, We're going to give them health benefits, and we're going to make sure there's a floor to how much money they can make. And it's just going to be awesome. And, you know, honestly, um, they, you know, when you load up the uh, media with $200 million worth of advertising, which is what they did, um, that was the message that got through to the public. And I had many people congratulating us on our big win. And I said, do you know it took our labor rights away? And they were like, no. But the judge saw what it's really for, which is so that. Lyft, Uber, DoorDash, etc., can have total flexibility on how to make money without any regard to uh, the workers. They say it might actually be appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. So it could be that the Supreme Court is the final word on this. But um, in the meantime, what, um, you know, the gig work 
companies are going to say, well, this undermines the will of the people and blah, blah, blah. So uh, like, what, what do you, uh, how do you hope that this, this ruling might resonate uh, in other states that uh, maybe considering similar legislation or uh, where gig work companies are pushing for similar policy changes? Well, I mean, all the work that we're doing, this work uh, that this uh, court did, uh, all of this is helping to expose uh, what these companies are actually trying to wrestle out of law, whether it through a initiative process or through uh, legislation. Um, and we'll continue to to fight on this. But that's why I think, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, lawsuits for years, you know, whatever. In the meantime, people are actually doing this work, which is why uh, I really feel that the, the feds, you know, we have people in charge of the country right now who actually say they care about workers and care about these app-based workers. The federal government has to protect workers deployed by apps. And that's what has to change. Uh, legislation like the PRO Act um, is essential. I mean, right now, as drivers in California, we don't have the right to form our own union, right? The PRO Act would give us that right and give us protections when we're working towards having our own union. There's been so much attention around Prop 22 that people may have forgotten about AB5, which was the law that Prop 22 actually um, was trying to seek exemptions to for gig workers. Can you talk about what happens with AB5 now? If this ruling sticks, uh, would that mean that everything reverts back to AB5? And how will that change the game? Absolutely. Um, AB5 is the law of the California land. Um, it will continue to be the law of the California land. There's a few um, uh, subsequent uh, legislation that has helped carve out some people who have a little bit different needs, such as um, journalists and um, uh, musicians and that kind of thing. Prop 22 just said, none of this applies to you. Now Prop 22 is struck. So uh, we default back to AB5, which codifies that all of us... Um, who are controlled by um, our um, employers and are doing the the primary work of our employers, the ABC test, uh, that we are employees under California law. What's interesting is what's going on right now is the companies are already pushing all kinds of notifications around fear um, that Prop 22 is going away. They're saying nothing's changing right now. Nothing's changing. You know, that the, the court is totally wrong about this. Um, people are concerned that they'll have to go to shifts. There's nothing about AB5 or labor law that requires us to go to shifts, that requires us not to be able to turn on our app whenever we we want, the, you know, all that fear baiting that has been going on for years about, you know, whether or not we're um, covered by basic labor law is, is happening. And what I just, my message to drivers and delivery workers is there's nothing in labor law that takes our flexibility away. As we discover um, on the terrain uh, under Prop 22, Uber specifically took our flexibility away when they um, disallowed us from seeing um, our destinations, when they took away our multipliers. Um, they took away our flexibility under Prop 22. 
because it's always up to the employer whether or not their employees have flexibility, um, which is why um, I think many of us in the app-based communities, we want the right to have our own unions so that we can collectively bargain, you know, all of us together with these companies and have legally enforceable contracts where we can have legally enforceable language that ensures our flexibility. And it's not up to them. It's up to the contract that we bargain. And I think that's, you know, that's where this is going. And that's what the judge nailed in his comment, which is that, you know, the the companies don't want us to unionize. And, and bottom line, that's what they want is total control. They want the flexibility to do whatever they want. And they're going to tell us that, um, you know, it's going to reduce our flexibility. And we just have to see through that. And we have been working uh, with um, an academic, um, Brian Dolber and Policy Link to start and sort of dig into what's really happening for drivers under Prop 22. And, uh, you know, big surprise, it's not as good as being protected under basic labor law. And we started with looking at health benefits. Yeah. So the report focuses on um, both uh, safety protections as well as um, health care protections. So maybe we can start with Healthcare. Um, what did Prop 22 promise to do differently with healthcare? Because currently, well, I mean, most uh, uh, most rideshare drivers across the country, I imagine, are uh, you know don't really have healthcare access through um, through the rideshare program. So um, Prop 22 promised to change that. So what did it actually say, and what happened with drivers? Well, I mean, what the sound bites were in the media were that, you know, Prop 22 was going to give people healthcare stipends that they could apply towards buying their own insurance. And, you know, that sounds, it sounds great. You know, who wouldn't want help to buy their own insurance? Um, but if you read the law closely, um, they're implementing it pretty much the way the law says, which is you don't get um, a health stipend if you uh, get your health care through a partner, through another job, or God forbid, through Medi-Cal, which is our safety net, um, you know, health care, um, you know, Obamacare that is free for people who make um, close to poverty or less than poverty. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is 29% of the drivers get their health care because they live on the edge in poverty after expenses you know we're not earning above poverty 29% of the drivers are funded um you know by taxpayers and receive medical so none of those people despite the fact that they're living in poverty and eligible <laughs> you know to uh uh, you know, for for Medi-Cal, they're they're not making enough money to get a, a, a stipend from for for healthcare. So that's twenty nine percent. There's people that get it from other um, you know other sources. There, you know, I think what was really important to me was that you know double the number of the national average of rideshare workers are uninsured. So if this was supposed to help drivers become more insured, they're still actually less insured than the rest of the public. Um, 
only 10% of drivers uh, are actually receiving the health uh, stipend from the company. And um, as a matter of fact, um, the group that is least insured and is less likely to receive any of the health stipends are uh, Latinos. And um, that is the biggest, you know, we know that this law assigns a workforce of majority uh, black and brown and immigrant workers, second class status. But even within our workforce, Latinos are doing worse than the other groups. A lot of people told us they didn't qualify because in order to get the full health health care stipend, you have to work 25 hours a week. Now, that sounds great unless you can't work for only the time that you're actively ferrying a passenger um, and, you know, picking up that first ride. Um, The wait time, which is honestly the majority of most of our time on the road, um, is not counted towards that 25 hours. So for that reason, a lot of people didn't qualify either. And so when, just to clarify the distinction between engaged time and um, your total time. So basically, these rideshare companies can monitor when you're actually carrying a passenger in your car. Is that how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So engage time is from the times they um, they send you a ride and you accept it to the time you drop that passenger off. And, you know, this is uh, an interesting business model because your benefits and pay are based on when you're actively um, doing the, the job. But, you know, imagine a cashier at a store only being paid while they were checking a customer out. Right. Um, You know, um, it allows the company to have, you know, 10,000 cashiers or 10,000 drivers in this case and have only two customers and it doesn't cost them any money. And it's almost like the rideshare company uh, benefits from paying employees or well, paying its drivers less, given that the lower they earn, the less likely it will be that they qualify for the stipend. (laughs) Exactly. And I think we're only beginning to understand, you know, it's not just the data that these companies have, like how much people make, how many miles they put on their car. It's the algorithms that control it. And I think, you know, when you sit behind the wheel and your boss is the algorithm, you start to see what's really happening. I mean, they are gaming us if they know that we have certain goals and we won't quit until we make those goals. Um, they'll pace out, you know, the rides to keep us on the road longer because they need somebody to be on the road from 2 to 3 a.m. in order for people requesting rides at that time to have drivers available. So they'll, they'll, you know, and the same thing happens on the customer side. They um, gauge your price point and based on these very complex algorithms, they'll charge one customer a lot more than the next because they know their price point is higher. And, you know, that's what's happening with a lot of things, whether they're um, the bonuses that they um, entice us back to the roads with, or in this case, benefits. You know, how do you get to 25 hours? Guess what? The companies are in charge of getting you to those 25 hours. And if they think they can keep you on the road longer by um, stretching out your um your customers, um, you know, uh, they'll do it. And they, the carrot that we keep driving for is, 
you know, uh, maybe a bonus that they put in front of us or healthcare benefits, but they're in control of how many hours we have a passenger in the car. They're in control of, you know, whether or not we get to the earnings that we need at the end of the day. And we have no say. The report also tackled uh, the safety training that yeah. workers are supposed to be getting. So what was that safety training supposed to involve and uh, how did it actually pan out for drivers? Understand that every problem of society is inside our car and it's a very small enclosed space. So whether we're dealing with sexual harassment, whether we're dealing with physical attacks, I mean, there have been drivers this year who have been killed. Um, and it's, it's a very dangerous job. So the safety trainings are, um, you know, are designed to uh, try to get, you know, um, to give drivers safety sort of strategies and that kind of thing. I mean, honestly, I've been asking drivers um, who are on the road right now, you know, what the safety training was about, and I can't find a driver who's had it. So, I mean, I, w- <laughs> I would like to see the safety training. I don't see that there, I mean, the safety that drivers want is when a passenger um, has put drivers in a dangerous situation, those passengers should be deactivated. The other situation that we're in constantly is somebody will order the ride, but that's not the person taking the ride. There's total anonymity of the rider and we're put in dangerous situations in those situations as well. There is so much lack of you know, regulation around safety, that a safety training, while I support it, that we have strategies to keep ourselves safe and and that sort of thing, I don't think that those are the things that drivers really want and really need to keep ourselves safe. Just to be clear, I mean, this was supposed to be the rideshare company's substitute for actual protections from Occupational Safety and Health Administration, right? I mean, like... If drivers were employees, they'd have they'd be protected by federal law. Exactly, and I mean, th- there's reasons that those laws are in place. It's not unusual for you know industrial uh, you know service related jobs to have unsafe situations. Workers have to have the backup. It's cheaper to have an unsafe workplace. It's cheaper for the boss. It's the most expensive thing for the worker ever, and you know. My, I mean, my heart goes out. We've had, you know, carjackings. We've had, um, you know, violent attacks, especially in the last six months. It feels like it's really increasing in the driver community. It's not decreasing. And it's a critical issue for drivers. Now you have this first batch of data. Um, and so, like, as Rideshare Drivers United, what do you plan on doing with it? We're really looking for federal legislation to help app-based workers in the whole country. Because while Prop 22 has really um, tied communities' hands from regulating this business, um, you know, and really puts all of the control in this law that was written by the companies, um, they're moving this law across, you know, 
basically clones of this law across the country to New York, um, to New York State, um, where delivery uh, workers and labor shut that law down. But they're doing the same kind of campaign in Massachusetts, where they're you know drawing very beautiful pictures about how we can help make app-based workers' lives better with this law. Um, everybody should pass it. They're doing an initiative process, and you know we're we want the people of Massachusetts to know and any other state where they try to pass a proposition like this, that, you know, it's, you know, it's a false bill of goods. You're not going to get what you signed up for. You know, they can't sell this uh, false bill of goods um, across the country. If we as drivers, we as voters talk to voters and drivers and app-based workers in other states and say, this is what these laws are really about. And so, you know, that's what we want to do is really expose uh, Prop 22 for what it really is. It's not just academics, you know, um, figuring out this law will probably do this or will probably do that. We're real workers. We're real drivers. And this is what the law is doing. It's not helping us. It's assigning us a second class labor status. We need first class status like other workers in the country. Um, and that's how we can, you know, pull all of ourselves up together. That was Nicole Moore of Rideshare Drivers United. One of the big political and labor debates this summer in the UK, where I have been, has been around the campaign for leadership of Unite, one of the country's largest unions, active across many sectors, and the one most often associated with Corbynism. The popular depiction of the struggle within the union was that the left was splitting the vote between multiple lefty candidates, while a right-wing candidate was in turn likely to run away with the title of general secretary. This is after Len McCluskey, who was the longtime leader of the union and a power broker within the Labor Party, decided to step down. The so-called left candidates were being repeatedly urged to, well, unite behind one candidate in a conversation that frankly frustrated the hell out of your friendly multi-neighborhood labor reporter. The coverage in the press focused on the union's relationship with different factions of the Labour Party, assuming that Gerald Coyne, the Labour right candidate, would ally with the Starmer leadership and the party's right wing, and Steve Turner, who is McCluskey's choice to succeed him, would continue to be aligned with the party's left and that anybody else running was simply a spoiler going to hand the election to Coyne. But the winner, in fact, was Sharon Graham, who runs Unite's Organizing and Leverage Department specializing in conflicts with employers. She's been compared by some to Sarah Nelson, who our listeners are very familiar with, and she ran a campaign calling for more attention to the workplace rather than party politics, to winning conflicts, which of course has been her job at the union for years, in the workplace, and to building a base of working class people outside of the Labor Party. She'll be the first woman leader of the 1.2 million member union, and she won with a campaign that got the least media attention, that was painted as a spoiler by prominent leftists, and that was focused on the union as a union. What a concept. So there are a lot of lessons from this story that I think are worth noting, but the biggest one is that unions are not political parties. Fights within them are going to be focused on union issues, and they should be covered as such. And this is a little bit maybe less of an issue in the U.S., although certainly the coverage of um, the AFL-CIO post the death of Richard Trumka has shown us that it will also continue to be covered as a faction of the Democratic Party rather than a union federation. So anyway, I just thought I'd share a few clips from one of the few interviews done with Sharon Graham before the election from Red Pepper magazine. 
on union organizing. She says, quote, I started work as a silver service waitress and by 17 had led my first walkout in defense of casual workers. Doing that in what was a largely non-unionized industry teaches you a few things. You understand that workers' power is held by workers themselves, not by a union machine or bureaucracy. That is critical to the way that I still see unions today. We need to build an army of leaders at the workplace and throughout the economy. Of course, we need to service individual members better, and I will make sure that happens. But to build power and deliver real change, we need strong, self-sustaining organization. That is what I am offering, a real industrial program to build power at work and drive the politics from the bottom up. That requires change and therefore is resisted by many who are already part of the incumbent machine, end quote. On the question of the Labor Party, she says, quote, we see progressive politics as being a lot more than elections and the Labor Party, as important as that can be. We need to build a sustainable progressive platform that sits outside of any party. We need to build a real base within workplaces and communities. They are our twin pillars, if you like. You can't rely on a leader or spontaneous action. We have to build a movement ourselves. That means organizing properly in workplaces and linking that to communities. Fortunately, we have the resources within the political fund to do this. Progressive politics has to start meaning something in people's everyday lives. We have to work with people to identify issues and then set about solving them. We sponsor a whole host of noble causes, but do very little of this work ourselves. We need to become part of the fabric of a community, build trust, and earn your credibility. Great policies are not enough. We need to do the hard, unglamorous work of organizing. End quote. There are links at the Descent website to what I've discussed here. And um, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens going forward. Window cleaners in the Twin Cities do some of the most dangerous jobs in the state of Minnesota. They're the guys who hang from harnesses while wiping the windows of office towers suspended in midair. And for 10 days, they suspended their work altogether because they said their employers had refused to bargain in good faith in their latest contract negotiations. That strike just ended after 10 days with a four-year contract that includes funding for Minnesota's first ever state-registered window cleaner apprenticeship safety program, wages that will increase over the course of the contract to more than $30 an hour, That makes Minnesota window cleaners pay among the highest in the country, and they get increased sick days and disability pay. Altogether, 40 workers walked out last week on an indefinite unfair labor practice strike, accusing the companies of trying to back out of collective bargaining. The union, SEIU Local 26, initially approached the employers with contract proposals in December of 2019, and then when the pandemic hit, they agreed to delay the talks at the company's request. But while the negotiations were stalled, the window cleaner's work actually intensified. According to the union, during the pandemic, they were directed to, quote, sterilize contaminated areas after COVID cases were reported in many office towers. Many received little training or additional equipment for this dangerous work, unquote. And after having to take on those two risky jobs, the window cleaners argued that the companies were still dragging their feet on their basic contract demands. Although the union said management had earlier signaled it would agree to several of the workers' proposals, and that was prior to the pandemic, the long delay ended up prompting the strike. One of the main goals was to be certified by the state as a skilled trade so that there can be an apprenticeship program, which would improve safety training as well as compensation, according to the union. While the commercial window cleaning industry numbers fewer than 80 workers statewide in a handful of companies, most of them are SEIU members, According to the union, quote, three have died in workplace accidents in the last 15 years, unquote. 
In addition, the pandemic has taken a toll on Local 26 as a whole, with four members dying from COVID-19 and about 1,000 workers forced to take unpaid time off to self-isolate after being exposed to the virus. One of the companies involved in the talks, Apex North, agreed to the demand and their workers returned to work earlier. The rest of the window cleaners who engaged in the work stoppage will now return to work next Monday. With the announcement of the strike's conclusion on Thursday morning, Eric Crone, a window cleaner, steward, and executive board member of SEIU Local 26, said he hoped that the strike would, quote, show other essential workers that when you band together and stay the course, you can get results. Joe Biden campaigned for the presidency on the promise of both dealing comprehensively with climate change and expanding job opportunities in the renewables industry and other green sectors. But now that he's well into his first year in office, environmental groups fear the Biden administration is neglecting those earlier promises and hope for the Green New Deal, the climate justice plan that progressives in Congress outlined well before the election, is now withering on the vine. On the heels of the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, we know that time is running out, or basically has run out already, for governments, particularly the U.S., to take massive steps toward decarbonizing the economy and developing green jobs. But in Washington, the infrastructure bill that has advanced through Congress so far is devoid of many of those core climate measures that Biden initially outlined in his his infrastructure plan. A larger, more comprehensive infrastructure plan that Congress is also weighing right now would likely contain stronger climate change measures. But the prospects for passing that plan, which would require going through the filibuster-proof budget reconciliation process in a sharply divided Senate with a sharply divided Senate, remain unclear. Meanwhile, a recent survey indicates that more than 60% of respondents would support legislation focused on boosting investment in clean energy. So how are the Biden administration and Congress measuring up when it comes to executing a broad climate justice agenda, particularly on the issue of transitioning to a decarbonized society and protecting the workers who have the most to lose in the shift away from fossil fuels and the most to gain from a green economic future? I spoke with Joe Uline, founding president of the Labor Network for Sustainability, about the gap between our political reality and an equitable vision for climate justice that both the labor and environmental movement should get behind. Biden came into office promising to do a number of things related to climate change and climate justice, and he linked that to creating jobs. From a labor and environmental standpoint, how would you assess his first few months in office? I would assess it as fair, great intentions, but the politics present roadblocks and You know, what Biden said was that he wanted to be the best labor president ever, which is a very low bar, by the way, and I'm sure he can exceed uh, previous presidents. But then he also said he wants to be the president who finally does something about the climate crisis. And those two goals, uh, well, It's a tricky balancing act uh, because doing something about the climate crisis uh, in a way that is consistent with the scientific consensus means very dramatic action immediately. And that's not possible in in this uh, political system and culture of our politics Uh, Doing things quickly is difficult, and addressing both jobs and climate 
although totally possible, um, is not happening in the way that uh, that he had hoped it would. I guess when you say good intentions, I mean, what did he put out on the table? Because he hasn't completely departed from what, you know, say the Obama administration proposed in terms of encouraging investments in green energy and, and things like that. So, I mean, does is what he's doing actually meeting the moment, uh, especially in light of the latest research that's come out, spelling out some very grim, grim prospects in the future? Oh, it is not meeting the moment. There's no question about that. Uh, nothing that's happening on Capitol Hill uh, or in the White House is meeting the moment. And that's kind of been the problem over the last 40 years. It's why we're at the precipice now, staring at a very, very uh, uncomfortable future, uh, is because no one has met the moment. Everybody's looking for workarounds, reasons not to meet the moment. And jobs is often used as uh, one of the uh, excuses. Um, So no, he's not meeting the moment. When the infrastructure plan first came out, and and I guess if you go back further, when his American jobs plan came out, um, it contained a number of measures that were related to uh, climate change and proposed some federal investments. What exactly did he propose and how did that plan end up panning out or getting whittled down through the political process? What he has always proposed has has been an all of the above energy policy. So let's just start with that because all of the above energy is a recipe for climate catastrophe. It it's what that policy says is that we can continue to extract and burn fossil fuels while we solve the climate crisis and maybe at some point down the road, which looks pretty far down the road right now, we'll have technologies that will pull the carbon out of the air. And that's how we're going to solve this problem. That is a huge, dangerous gamble. Uh, but that's, that's, what his, that's what the Biden administration is uh, proposing. Uh, that's what the American labor movement is proposing. And that's at the heart of the at, of the political problem, in that how can he be accountable to his friends in the labor movement, and at the same time accountable to his friends in the climate movement, when their goals are so different? That's that's the uh, uh, the crux of the problem, I think. It seemed like. When Biden was campaigning, many of the components in his environment and and jobs plan um, were influenced by pressure he had been receiving from below, from groups like um, Sunrise mm-hmm. Movement and and even you know progressive members of Congress. How where is that pressure now, and and can it actually be brought to bear? even though he's not campaigning actively <laughs> for anything right now. I guess, like, where where does the grassroots have leverage now that it seems to be largely in the hands of Congress? Yeah, I think that uh, there is leverage. And the, the challenge is how can we compress and escalate our 
strategies and tactics at the same time? How do we keep the pressure on and escalate the pressure? Because uh, that's what's needed right now. And to uh, apply it beyond the White House, but to members of Congress, uh, that is the mistake that was, the, that was made after uh, Barack Obama was elected president, uh, is, is that the pressure on him kind of dropped. And he just sort of went a, you know, let's work things out and do bipartisan this and that. And it's kind of why he didn't get a whole lot done on this issue. He got a lot done, but not so much on the on the climate issue. And that's the same place uh, that, but one, Joe Biden comes from that same school of politics. Uh, and so he now finds himself in that same place. And so the, you know, all the job creation stuff is great. And the American jobs plan, the infrastructure work and so on. It's not enough. It, frankly, it's not even close to enough. Uh, but when it, when it goes through the, the congressional process with all the lobbying from the American Petroleum Institute and its allies, then everything gets watered down, just like it did with Waxman-Markey 10 or so years ago. Uh, it's happening again here. Right. So we're starting out with fairly fairly limited plans to begin with, and those are getting diluted even further by the time right. we get to right. um, through Congress. So you drew a comparison with Barack Obama, and maybe we could take that analogy further, given that Biden is also entering office at a time when the country is trying to recover from historic economic crisis, and also the climate crisis is just getting ever, ever worse. So what are some things that Obama did that Biden should specifically avoid doing? Well, Biden needs to be a fighter. And Obama needed to be a fighter on this issue, but he wasn't. Uh, I remember a call I got from a reporter after Obama's first hundred days asking me for an assessment. Uh, and I and I said, well, he's proving to be more suitable to run the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service as opposed to being president which requires leadership, and in this time, strong leadership on climate. You say Biden needs to fight. I suppose what people in his administration would say is, well, we're up against the filibuster in the Senate. We have two centrist Democratic senators who appear to be you know, turning obstruction into something of a spectator sport, and that is one reason why uh, on a very practical level, it's just really hard to push stuff through. So what's, <laughs> what is to be done? Well, I understand all that. And, and if, if that's, you know, the, the uh, objective reality of our political system, okay, so then we need to change that system because the alternative is unacceptable. Uh, as most people know by now this problem is getting worse and worse and we're looking at the sixth major extinction event difference here is that this one is suicide none of the previous events were suicide this one is we know what we're doing 
we've known for well over a half a century. And if the political system is going to continue to fail us, then we need to change the rules. And that is what the uh, what Bernie Sanders organization, Our Revolution, is trying to do. They're trying to change the rules of politics and elect progressives. And I mean, that's, so that's what we have to do. That's what the people have to do. Biden could be more like Bernie Sanders and less like Barack Obama. Problem is he does have corporate Wall Street Democrats that are lobbying him uh, constantly, along with the American Petroleum Institute and its allies. Uh, and that those, those are tough forces for him to resist. So if he's not up to the task, uh, then we need to elect people who we think will be. So your group focuses on the intersection between climate justice and labor. Yes. Where has the labor movement been, I guess the mainstream labor movement, let's say, um, in this debate? And to the extent that Biden is really dropping the ball on this, a lot of his green proposals involve, you know, tax breaks for businesses and that kind of thing. What would it be like if there were a strong voice of labor that was pushing specifically on climate and not just talking about sort of green jobs in a tokenistic kind of way, but actually looking to restructure the economy in a way that's actually sustainable, both ecologically and in terms of everyday working people? Yeah, uh, that's a hard question uh, to answer. I can, I can tell you this, that from our perspective, the labor climate uh, divide is a, uh, it's a huge challenge. It's one that uh, we believe there are answers to uh, that have to do with job creation that's climate friendly and getting off of fossil fuels altogether. That's the, the crux of if there wasn't a fossil fuel issue here, we wouldn't have a problem. But there is. And it's a big issue. Uh, and so the getting away from the all of the above energy uh, is something that, you know, some unions are recognizing as necessary. Uh, the AFL-CIO is not because it has a powerful block of unions in the energy sector. A lot of members work in the fossil fuel industries. And that's why, I mean, they're fighting to protect the jobs of those members. Uh, I get that. Every labor leader has a legal duty to represent the interests of those who pay dues to the union today. So they have a legal and a moral duty. Uh, however, there you can do that while at the same time protect the, the climate, the planet, the people on it by creating the good jobs in renewable energy. Uh, and that requires getting off of the old jobs. So there has to be a just transition program that's big and federal and well-funded so that there's no roadkill. Working people have always been the roadkill in transitions in our economy. And this is our chance to put in place a just transition program that will prevent that from happening. You know, we just completed a just transitioning listening project where we interviewed 
over 100 working people around the country from all different industries and uh, locations. Uh, you know, we interviewed refinery workers, fossil fuel refinery workers who see the writing on the wall. They understand what's happening and they know that their occupation uh, may not be there in five years or 10 years. And so they're looking for alternatives. Uh, and there's a bunch who, you know, who don't, uh, but who but who testified to the unjust transitions they've been through and to what would make those transitions uh, easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe there's a realization that the transition is coming, whether... <laughs> Whether we're yeah. ready or not, and it's it's really about how society chooses to respond to that. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, we've had recommendations for many years, and we've just recently revised them based on uh, what we heard in these interviews. Uh, we've been consistent on the just transition, and uh, and I I view that as a keystone uh, issue. And then that will smooth the way to uh, more appropriate uh, answers to the climate crisis. But without just transition, and by that I mean uh, five years guaranteed wages, uh, health care, pensions, education, training, relocation, all of that uh, for workers and communities. We got to do this right if we're going to do it. Um, it's a chance to rebuild uh, the economy around new rules. But somebody's got to fight for it. Uh, and right now, the climate movement is the only movement fighting for that broad, comprehensive policy. Uh, the labor movement is fighting for something, but it's not that kind of broad, comprehensive, and sufficient set of policies. The idea of a just transition, I mean, this this has been discussed, you know, globally um, in terms of how to completely restructure the economy and kind of change the relationship between workers in the state and uh, workers and employers and, of course, workers in, in the environment. But since nothing like this has ever been implemented, can you understand why some workers may feel fairly cynical about the prospects of something like this, and and how would you persuade them in this case to to really buy into something like this? Because you ultimately will need the buy-in of workers. Yeah, uh, I totally understand why workers are suspect. They should be. Uh, I'm from Ohio. A huge part of my family lost good jobs in the steel industry with pensions and health care pensions that they thought were guaranteed. And then those pensions evaporated when the steel industry went through a, a whole host of bankruptcies and, and closings. Uh, and they ended up, you know, working in Walmarts and McDonald's and so on. So yeah, I totally get it. They should be suspect. Uh, I do think that it is a, a duty of leadership, both nationally and in the labor movement, uh, to find the solutions that will 
maybe not eliminate completely, but reduce the suspicion of these programs. And I think the five-year window of guaranteed wages, pension, health care, et cetera, provides a, uh, you know, a bit of a, of a cushion and a jumping off point to a new career. That's what people need to uh, be presented with, you know, not just sort of a, well, we'll find you some retraining and, and maybe you'll have to move across the country to get some new job that'll pay half of what you used to make. That'll never fly. What we have to present to people is plans to provide for basic needs. Um, without that, uh, we're going to have a really hard time of it. And of course, we're out of time. So that's why I keep coming back to, I want to see someone in the White House who's going to fight for these policies, uh, be bold and brave and uh, find a way to, to solve it. This has happened in the past. Presidents have been bold and brave about many things and successfully solved problems. But I'm not seeing that today. There's a debate within the climate movement about the role of business and the role of labor and um, whether politicians should you know, actively seek the support of uh, green capitalism or like green <laughs> business, right? So given that corporate influence has tainted politics so much already, we have seen many corporations moving into the the climate space in recent years. Yeah. So how should we treat that as a political matter? Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, as a political matter, uh, you know, corporate rule is a reality. It is in both parties. Um, and I don't, you know, the, the only, historically, the only effective counterbalance to corporate rule has been unions. So that's why our belief is that in order to address the climate crisis adequately, we have to get the support of the labor movement. And the labor movement has been at the forefront of almost every great social movement throughout history. And so it's except this one. Uh, so it, it is, I think, time for unions to pressure the AFL-CIO for uh, unions to step up and lead uh, on finding real answers to the climate crisis. And by that, I mean not this sort of, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, maybe by 2100, maybe it'll be cost effective and, and can be done at scale. Nothing points in that direction, but okay, maybe. Problem is, that's way too late. There won't be anything left to save by 2100. Over the years, well, historically, there's been a general sort of cultural divide and as well as a political divide between the environmental movement, particularly sort of the elite oriented environmental movement mm -hmm. and, and working class communities and labor in general. In the mobilizations for a Green New Deal, have you seen um, efforts to 
bridge that divide or or create more lasting coalitions. I mean, I, I remember, you know, a decade ago, there was sort of a blue-green alliance thing. And then, um, and in recent years, I haven't heard so much about that kind of coalition. So where is that now? And I guess, does the environmental movement also have something to answer for in terms of how it reaches out to unions and labor, if it does at all? Yeah, it definitely does have something to answer for. I mean, the environmental and, and climate movements have been, uh, until the last few years, tone deaf when it comes to working people's issues and concerns. Uh, my observation is that they've come a long way uh, and are trying very hard, uh, one, to relate to, to understand, and to incorporate the needs of working people into their proposals. It is central to our whole mission at the Labor Network for Sustainability uh, is to bring these movements closer together because we believe that's the only way we're going to win on this issue of, of climate change is if the labor movement and the climate movement find common ground and fight together for a better future. Can you point to any positive examples of coalitions that have formed or legislative victories, maybe on the state level or the local level, that uh, illustrate the kind of transition or the kind of politics that you are you are hoping for in, in Washington? Well, there are examples. There's not a lot, but there are definitely examples Um you know, in the state of Washington, the labor movement and the climate justice movement joined forces and over a period of several years built a coalition um, strong enough to get a proposal before the voters, you know, for, for a vote, not, not before the legislature, but a ballot initiative to address the climate crisis and create a just transition. That ballot initiative uh, that both movements supported and helped create uh, lost because of the influx of massive amounts of money by the fossil fuel industry. Uh, but so it wasn't an ultimate victory, but it was a victory in terms of bringing those movements together, jointly creating a proposal getting enough signatures to get it on the ballot. Uh, those, were all, those are all things that, um, that we point to as good signs. The problem with all of this, as I've said before, is time and timing. Uh, there's, uh, there's no strategy that will succeed if it doesn't address the time and timing issues uh, of where we're at. So we don't have forever. We have a few years, but there's a lot of state level activity around renewable energy. Uh, and some of it is with labor and environmentalists, climate people working together, and some of it isn't. Uh, but there's, I think in most states, there's something uh, happening along these lines. The, the problem is that it, it needs a federal program we're not going to solve the climate crisis local by local, state by state. We need a federal program and we need it fast. 
in light of the UN report that just came out looking at the state of the state of the climate crisis right now. Can you talk about this in a global context in terms of, you know, given that that the AFL-CIO has not really been really at the forefront of the climate justice issue, you know, thinking globally about climate and labor policy might seem a bit far out there, but just in terms of um, what you see as the path forward uh, on a global level, because ultimately this does affect every worker in the world, what would you like to see maybe unions or lawmakers or just ordinary individuals in the United States doing uh, to connect with that broader global movement? Well, you know, I, it is not, it's not a far-fetched question. It's a very good question. Um, I did spend, oh, well over a dozen years serving on the UN Commission on Global Warming. I served from its inception in 1988 until about 2003. Uh, and so I know something about the, these dynamics. Um, and on the one hand, you could argue that they've changed a lot uh, post the Kyoto Accords, but those changes were largely structural in updating the science. Uh, it can also be argued that uh, the global systems uh, have failed us, just as our national systems have, even though other countries have done far more uh, on climate than we have, and the labor movements in other countries have uh, been working on climate for a long time. So for us, I think we need to learn a little bit from uh, other countries and labor in other countries about how to go about building a labor climate movement. Now, I have to point out here that in all the other industrialized societies, they have built-in uh, support mechanisms. They have strong social safety nets. Uh, you know, no worker in Europe or Scandinavia or any of the industrialized countries has to worry about where their health care is going to come from. No worker has to worry about where their pension's coming from. They don't have to worry about how to educate their kids through college. Uh, in most of these countries, it's free. Uh, so there's built-in mechanisms that we don't have here. So in the United States, the kitchen table, the quintessential kitchen, kitchen table worries of workers are, how am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to get a pension? How am I going to afford a vacation? Where's my health care coming from? And as long as those are everyday struggles, uh, working people are going to have a hard time taking a broad, long view of what's needed and what's necessary, because what's necessary and needed for them is taking care of their families. Uh, and we don't do a good job of that in, in the United States of America. It's, uh, you know, we have the it's the Wall Street corporate paradigm. Uh, and it uh, it just falls very, very short uh, when it comes to that, which is why I always preach for just transition programs, because we don't have any of the other support mechanisms in place. Yeah. I mean, transitioning to anything is going to be difficult if uh, yeah. 
if any kind of disruption to your to your livelihood is going to put your life at risk or your family's life at risk. Right. So for workers who are, you know, living in communities where environmental issues are not really at the forefront of any public debate and maybe where workers feel like they have a real stake in maintaining, um, you know, fossil fuel jobs, coal miners or, or one example that everyone always points to, but this is happening all over the country, right? I mean, there are vested interests and, and, uh, and, and many jobs at stake, right? In industries that are terrible for the environment. So um, for people living in those communities, how would you advise them to start in terms of trying to link these two and, and, uh, and, you know, whether it's in their union or in their workplace or their school or, you know, their local legislature, um, how would they start? Well, the best way to start, maybe the only way to start, is to open uh, your mind to the, the way other groups think. And, you know, the climate movement has to do this just as much as the labor movement does. But locally, to reach out to local, if you're a, a local union member or local union leader, uh, to reach out to the leaders and members of those who are fighting to solve the climate crisis. Explore common ground. Be clear about your reservations. To speak truthfully uh, with one another, uh, I think that's the only way to get to uh, a common understanding, which will lead to the answers that we need. If all the relationships are uh, developed around conflict and fighting, we're not going to uh, get to where we need to be. So I think it's a question of, uh, you know, for, uh, for labor people who complain, and I hear this a lot, that all oh, those environmentalists are just trying to steal our jobs. Or for climate movement people to say, geez, those fossil fuel workers just want to bake the planet. We have to get past that. Fossil fuel workers don't want to bake the planet. Fossil fuel unions don't want to bake the planet. They want to put bread on the table. Uh, and, and the climate movement people aren't trying to steal anybody's jobs. They're trying to fix a big problem. So we have to get past the surface uh, uh, sort of issues that bring us into conflict and dig deeper for what is our common interest here and how do we approach it? How do we, how do we find the answers? Uh, you know, in a sense, it's sort of the old needle in a haystack thing, but if you're not looking in the right haystack, you'll never find the needle. And maybe we're not looking in the right haystack. So maybe we le need to challenge our own uh, understanding of uh, power and politics and search for a better way. I know that sounds impossible, but it isn't. It's happened in the past. Uh, if I didn't believe we could do it, I wouldn't be doing this work. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Joe Uline, president of the Labor Network for Sustainability. 
We'll put links and more information up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. This week, I am bringing you a piece from Hannah Beciche at Galdem Magazine called Lovin' It! How a Group of Marseille Workers Seized a McDonald's and Turned It into a Food Bank. Marseille, on the south coast of France, is one of Europe's most diverse cities, and one divided in two along class and race lines. But one former McDonald's, shuttered in 2018, has been the site of layers of struggle that have made headlines, and this piece dives into the story behind the feel-good McDonald's-turned-food-bank blurbs. Hannah writes, quote, In March 2020, the group of former McDonald's workers requisitioned the building and invited a local association to use the kitchens to cook meals for homeless people. After a few months, what started as a small venture turned into a partnership with 47 local associations serving a line of people from all walks of life that circled the whole site. A year later, now the food bank sees around 1,000 people arrive weekly to pick up parcels of free food, including items like fresh vegetables, dry foods, halal meats, and cooking essentials, end quote. The food bank, now known as La Pre-M, is still squatting the McDonald's without, as yet, legal rights to the space. It's staffed by volunteers, some of them former McDonald's employees, others former recipients of aid from the food bank. And those people lived through the harsh reality of the pandemic without the kinds of services that the other side of the city has. Hannah continues, quote, at the core of La Pre-M is one basic idea, a bottom-up, grassroots approach to community support led and enacted by local people who understand the localized issues and context. Who's better suited to know which solutions are best than the one who is living the problem, states Marius, an ex-McDonald's employee who now volunteers at La Pre-M. The goal is to give local actors the means to help their community. The seeds that blossomed into La Pre-M were planted in 2018 as a legal fight against the multi-million dollar company led by Kamal Gumari, ex-managing director of the restaurant. Kamal had been working here for 20 years, Marius explains. He used to battle for workers' rights a lot, even then. His aim was always to help our community by hiring young people that needed to be pulled off the streets. End quote. Through community support, the workers have secured a future for La Pre-M, Hannah writes. Quote, on July 9th, the city voted in favor of the mayor's plan to buy the building. Once the buyout happens, La Pre-M will become a social corporation owned by whoever wants to buy a share for 25 euros. It will be owned by the people. The next step is to turn this place into a social restaurant, Kamel explains. A social fast food center that will serve locally sourced burgers sold for a little compensation or for free, depending on the revenue. And the workers plan on using that enterprise to create jobs for those in the neighborhood. Quote, we'll primarily hire people from the neighborhood, the ones who desperately need jobs, he said. Around here, there are a lot of hard luck kids who aren't given a chance. I know because I used to be one. The thing that saved me was this McDonald's. They hired me when I was 16. They gave me an opportunity. Now we hope to give one to every kid who needs it. The headline, In the Coal Mines, Workers Are Dying to Make a Living, could have been ripped from a newspaper a century ago. But instead... It continues to be an all-too-common phenomenon today. Coal mining is still one of the dirtiest and most dangerous jobs out there, so much so that there is an entire federal agency dedicated to monitoring mine safety, the Mine Safety and Health Administration. But Carrie Leiterson explains in In These Times that 
Today's coal mine workers are not only facing the threats that have plagued the industry for generations, from respiratory problems to mine collapses, but also struggling with the economic insecurity and exhaustion that comes with the precarity at the margins of the workforce. Many mine workers today are contractors, hired for short-term jobs through staffing agencies with fewer protections and benefits compared to regular direct hires. This contracting system, critics say, is making workers more vulnerable to injury and death. In the case of one worker in Illinois, Trevor Lenich, he reportedly fell asleep at the wheel one night on his way home from working a long shift as a contractor. He had been putting in more than 60 hours a week, and he and his co-workers had been pressured to work overtime and to work an understaffed overnight shift, according to Trevor's mother, Teresa. She had urged him to refuse overtime shifts or to call in sick, but as she recalls, her son just told her, quote, Mom, you don't understand. I can't. I'll lose my job. And if I lose my job, I can't support my daughter, unquote. That intense fear of losing one's job, which is powerful enough to lead workers like Trevor to continue working even under extreme risk to life and limb, is tied to the erosion of labor power in the mining industry over several decades. One ex-mine worker, reports Leiderson, had seen, quote, firsthand the loss of union representation, the increasing use of contractors, and the increasing pressure to work long hours, all with debilitating consequences for the safety and well-being of miners. He said, quote, guys are working as contractors because guess what? There are no other jobs in the industry. By the way, he asked that his name not be used for fear of retaliation. He continued, quote, if you have two little kids at home, you're trying to feed, and they say, hey, you're staying over tonight or you're working overtime tomorrow. Basically, you're doing the job or you're not going to be there anymore. It was never that way in the union, unquote. As with many industries, coal mining companies have tried to cut down their labor costs by using precarious contract labor. Historically, this was used relatively sparingly to deal with surges in production or as a way to put novice workers in a probationary period before they were fully hired. But from 1983 to 2015, the percentage of contractors working in the mines nearly quadrupled from 3.3% to 12.5%. A 2013 study by UPenn researchers revealed that, quote, between 1998 and 2007, contract miners suffered a higher proportion of fatal injuries relative to all injuries than direct hires, and that, quote, contractors have a higher chance of being fired or transferred because of an injury, unquote. Researcher Kristen Cummings of the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health speculated that the poor safety record is due to less experience on the job and, quote, more difficulty functioning safely after working overnight in the morning. A 2019 study found that, quote, injuries occurring after nine hours of work are more likely to be fatal and more likely to involve multiple minors, unquote. Trevor Lenich's exhaustion after that overnight shift was not classified as a mining accident per se. But the brutal work schedule may have played a role in his crashing his car. Adding insult to injury in Illinois, miners, along with farm workers and others, are exempt from the state's mandate that workers be granted at least one day of rest per week. There may also be underreporting of injuries as well. That study showed that injuries for contractors were about three times more likely to be fatal injuries compared to direct hires, though direct hires had more total injuries overall. The discrepancy suggests that either contractors' workplace injuries are disproportionately likely to kill them, or maybe they're just not reporting the injuries that don't kill them. The growing use of contract labor reflects how conditions in the mines have deteriorated alongside union representation. Currently, no mine workers in all of Illinois are represented by a union, which weakens the leverage of both contract workers and direct hires when it comes to negotiating their working conditions. 
Meanwhile, the coal industry in general is experiencing unprecedented tumult amid growing alarm about climate change, and that in turn has created backlash against environmental regulations in coal country and may be important of even more precarious working conditions down the line in the industry as the number of jobs shrinks and companies seek to further slash costs. The article doesn't get into this, but the troubling patterns in mine safety problems only underscore the importance of a just transition. As the Labor Network for Sustainability pointed out earlier in this podcast, it's not a question of dealing with climate change versus protecting livelihoods. The jobs in coal mining are, for many, the best way to earn a decent wage in that region. But they're also extremely dangerous and increasingly unsustainable on many fronts in terms of both the health of the environment and the health of the workers. We need to find a way to serve these communities in a way that honors their human and labor rights, as well as the integrity of the environment that has been so ravaged by fossil fuels over the years. Providing communities with that kind of dignity is definitely more than their industry is doing for them now. And that's all for now. Thanks for listening. And thanks, as always, to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good. And if you appreciate our work, don't forget to pitch in to support this independent journalism on our Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash belabored. And you can also support Descent Magazine by going to descentmagazine.org and subscribing. Our Patreon supporters can get lovely movement swag designed by esteemed movement artist Molly Crabapple. And to get all of our past episodes and to learn more about the topics addressed in this podcast, you can go to our archives at descentmagazine.org. And of course, we want to hear from you. If you're working in a fossil fuel-related industry and thinking about what a just transition means to you, or if you've got a dangerous job to do, whether it's cleaning windows and high-rises or working underground in a coal mine, or if you're a rideshare driver wondering what the future may hold after the court ruling on Prop 22, get in touch. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org, or you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.